As we get back into our series called Undeniable, where we're going through the final steps of Jesus' life, um, I want to remind you that we're only a couple steps away from Easter. Uh, Easter is coming up on the 21st, so we're two weeks out. And I also want to remind you that we will have the same two services we always have, 9 a.m. and 10.30. This affects you because as the 10.30 crowd, I will tell you that this will be the fuller of the two services just based on everything we've ever known about people. So... If you want to guarantee yourself a seat, or even better, your seat, because you all sit in the same spot every week and we notice, um, you are welcome to come and steal someone else's seat at 9 a.m. if you want to make sure you get that. If you come at 10.30, you are always welcome to come whatever time you want, but I just want to sort of forecast for you that it might be a little bit more crowded, and so make some time for that and be here early, and we will get everybody in one way or another. So uh, that being said, what we are working towards towards Easter is sort of these last uh, vignettes of the life of Jesus, these last moments that are, are shown to us in Scripture, these stories of uh, these kind of important markers on the way to the cross and eventually to resurrection. So what we're going to learn today is uh, something about true suffering, uh, something about the meaning of sleep, and then we're going to begin to understand our role in salvation. So we're going to learn about suffering, sleep, and salvation all in one Sunday. So what uh, I'd like to invite you to do is turn to the screen with me or turn to your Bibles in Matthew chapter 26, and we'll read together. Scripture says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He said. He asked that of Peter, and then he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for the cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time saying the same thing. Take this cup from me. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's a heavy passage leading up to the arrest of Jesus as he's going to be led then from there all the way through to the cross. The setting is important for us. We're in this olive grove. It says we're taken to Gethsemane, which is just an olive grove. And Gatshemanin, the words for Geth, that we get Gethsemane, just means oil press. That's all it is. And so in an olive grove with all these olive trees, the Mount of Olives, all the olives growing there have to be uh, harvested. And when they're harvested, it would make sense to have an oil press there because what you want from the olive, ultimately, the most precious thing, is, is the oil. And so at, there at the Mount of Olives, there was an oil press, Gatshemanin. And what would have happened is they would have taken the olives and, and partially crushed. They would have put them in this giant sort of vat, stone vat that they had. And they would have lowered that they have these levered stones. They would have lowered these giant heavy stones onto uh, these olives. And they would have then pressed them with these heavy stones. And as the weight of the stone presses down, they release their oil. And then what you skim off the top of that oil is even called extra virgin olive oil. That's how they still do it. It doesn't look quite the same way, but it's the same process. 
And so in the dark of night, Jesus and his friends show up at the Mount of Olives. They show up at this oil press. He invites three to go further with him into the garden. And so uh, verse 37 tells us that it was Peter and also James and John. And it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And this matters. It's a present progressive verb. It's saying that something began in this moment and that Jesus then says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. But something began here. It's something that is beginning and then will be ongoing. It's, it's that sort of tense that tells us that there's like a watershed thing happening in this moment. And he says, he began to be troubled and overwhelmed to the point of death. The indication is that he's beginning to feel the agony of what awaits him on the cross. He's beginning to feel the agony of what awaits him on the cross. And so as Jesus is here in the garden, there's this beginning of something new happening. He feels a heavy weight of anguish in the garden, and he feels as if it will kill him. He was overwhelmed to the point of death. He's saying, this thing that I'm going through feels like it's about to kill me now. Matthew isn't the only gospel writer who tells us this story. Mark tells the story. Luke tells it. They tell the same story from different vantage points. Mark uses the word troubled in Mark chapter 14. And the word that Mark uses is actually uh, the word that we would probably translate as horror. That Jesus was beginning to experience the horror of what awaited him, the horror of what he was about to go through. And as he experienced that, he began to feel overwhelmed to the point of death. Luke tells us that Jesus is actually sweating blood which is a condition, it's an actual medical condition called hematohydrosis, that Luke tells us when Jesus is in the garden, we've all kind of heard this, this is sort of common thing that Jesus was so anguished that he's sweating and there's like drops of blood coming down with his sweat. That his body is actually going into shock. It's an actual medical condition that has been observed in other places. The National Institute of Health, when you look this condition up, they will say that the observation of this condition has happened in our modern context. Interestingly, the place that they have observed it is almost exclusively in men on death row as they're about to be executed. The National Institute of Health has said hematohydrosis is a real thing that really happens, and the place we've actually seen it is in these men that are about to be killed. When somebody goes through acute fear and, and sort of tortuous mental contemplation of what's about to come, Only in that moment is the shock so great that they begin to sweat blood. So in the garden, we see Jesus entering his own personal house of horrors. Imagine there with him, his breathing is becoming rapid, his eyes are darting around, knowing that his capture is imminent, his mouth is dry, his stomach is in his throat, and he's sweating blood as the shock of what awaits him begins to bear down on him. Some commentators will suggest that the weight he feels is even more than the looming torture and death he knows is coming. Because, as we read, he keeps mentioning the cup. We tend to focus on the fact that his friends are sleeping or the fact that he's sweating blood. We focus on these details, but what we've never focused on, really, as we talk through this, is what is Jesus actually praying? Three times Jesus prays that the cup would be taken from him. We talked about cups at Passover, didn't we? That there are these four cups that are taken during the course of the Passover meal. There's the fifth cup, the cup of Elijah. And so what I want to do is separate those cups. Those cups are not this cup. Different cups, all together. What you need to know and understand is that in that time, um, execution by poison cup was a real thing. So Socrates is an example of somebody prominent that was killed by this method. 
A cup of poison was given to the person to be killed, and they would drink the cup or be forced to drink the cup, and as a result of that, their insides would literally just be emulsified. Put your organs in a blender, turn it on, and that's what you get. Really an unpleasant uh, scene altogether. Reminded me exactly of my first time driving through Skyline Chile. Sorry. Ohio shade right there where Tony Paco's. We ride hard. Okay. Um, you know that feeling of, of that sort of churning inside of you. You know that feeling of when the dread is coming. You know that feeling when, when you know bad news is on the other end of the line. You know all these feelings, but we know them about on a one on a scale of a hundred. And what we're seeing here in the garden is Jesus getting all of these feelings on a hundred and ten. He's getting all of these things hitting him at once. He's getting all of this all the weight is coming down at the same moment. Hebrew prophets use the cup as a metaphor for God's wrath upon human evil. I'll say it again. Hebrew prophets throughout the Old Testament, they used the cup as a metaphor for God's wrath upon human evil. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 23. It says, Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. It goes on. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shreds and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. That sounds profoundly unpleasant to me. That's God's feeling towards evil and sin in the world. Isaiah 51 says, you'll drink from the cup of his fury and you will stagger So what begins in verse 37, this began, he began to feel overwhelmed to the point of death. This is Jesus beginning to recognize and feel the fullness of God's wrath on the evil of human sin. It is being poured out upon him, and more so, as Jesus can tell, he is about to be poured out within him. That the cup is in his hands. And so he goes to the Father and he says, can you take the cup from me? And the scriptural response we get is silence. He goes again back to the Father. He says, but if it's possible, I I don't actually want this cup. Let me try another way of asking. You know what? I have it, but if you don't need me to have it, I don't need to have it. And the scripture records no response. It says the third time he went and said the same thing. Father, the cup, the cup. Not only is Jesus carrying the weight of sin and death and fearing imminent and very real torture and suffering, he is holding the very cup of God's wrath. He's holding the cup already because you cannot give away. You can't ask for someone to take something from you that you don't already have. And Jesus keeps saying, Lord, if you'll take the cup from me, Father, if you'll take the cup from me, which means Jesus is staring into the cup of God's wrath. He's holding the concentrated anger and justice against all evil and injustice in human history. And yet, he says, if I have to drink it, I will. If I must be melted from the inside while my flesh is whipped and my head pierced with thorns and my clothes stripped and my hands and feet nailed, if I must, then I will. If I must take on your wrath, I will. And so such is the shock of anticipation of what he is about to endure, that he is sweating blood in the garden. This is where we begin to feel sort of our own dry mouth. We begin to feel our own sort of jitters about this, just the weight of what Jesus is going through. And we remember where we are in this moment in the story. We're in the olive grove or Gat Shamanin, where that looming olive press 
is waiting. The massive stones designed to crush the olives for that most precious olive oil. And there's Jesus being pressed in the garden under the weight of sin. And he begins to sweat. And what comes out with the sweat but his most precious blood? The most perfect picture of what's happening in the garden is the same thing that we see in the olive presses. As the, as the weight comes down, that the most precious bits come out. That as Jesus is experiencing the weight of sin and death, the most precious thing, his blood that will be shed for you and for all so that sins might be forgiven, his blood even becomes out of him. It's starting to find its way out. It's starting to come out the most precious thing he has. He cries out. He's being crushed already. He cries out to the Father and he hears nothing. We listen then to the description of those who would suffer God's wrath. As, as Jesus begins to feel this weight and the wrath of God upon him in the garden, we say, well, what is this like? What is he going through? What is it? As he's crying out, take the cup, what is he feeling? What, what, is, he, what is he experiencing? Paul gives us a sense of what that is when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, he says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. Father, if you'll take this cup from me. Lord, if you want this cup. Father, can you please take the cup? They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. This is a key passage from where most of Orthodox Christianity would take our idea that hell is simply and most profoundly and most horrifyingly the incomplete absence of the presence of God. So Jesus prays, Father, Father, Father. We have to believe that a major part of the horror here is that Jesus, who lived wholly connected to God the Father, first at his right hand and then connected in prayer throughout his life on earth, is now experiencing and beginning to experience the complete separation from God. Hell. Jesus is experiencing the fullness of hell on our behalf, and we see the first glimpse of it here. That his abandonment has begun. The cup he is to drink is part of the journey that from this moment on, he takes alone. And it culminates on the cross where he quotes Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? What's interesting is while he is alone with regards to his crying out to the Father, he is not alone in the garden with regards to his friends. He's brought his friends to the garden. He's brought three of them into the inner sanctum with him so they might keep watch with him. They might be on guard with him that they could keep him company and comfort him. And then we see the picture of his three best friends there. Eyes heavy, fast asleep. So we ask, what's the meaning of this? As Jesus takes on the weight of sin, as he prepares to give his life for our salvation, even his closest friends are no help. You ever been in a time of need and had a friend just totally bail on you? Someone just ghosts you on the whole thing, and you're like, man, this is when I really needed that person most, and they're just gone. People know that feeling of when you've just sort of been abandoned by somebody you love and trusted and relied on, and they're just gone. Few things are as hurtful or as wounding as that. But look at the picture that we're getting here in the, in the garden. Humanity sleeps 
while Jesus suffers. Humanity rests while Jesus endures torture and death and eventually takes the cross. Humanity's role in this seems pretty limited. This tells us both something about the meaning of sleep and our role in salvation, which is this, while we sleep, God works. While we sleep, God works. When you go to sleep tonight, you will wake up and the earth will still be spinning. And God willing, your heart will still be beating. And what you will have done for the previous four or six or eight or twelve hours is absolutely nothing. While we sleep, God works. Sleep reminds us who's in charge and where true hope comes from. It also shows us our part of salvation. If you look at this story, it shows us our part of salvation. In the garden, it's the perfect picture. The role of humanity in salvation is slumber. The role of humanity in salvation is slumber. And we want to make it about us, and we want to make it my good works, and we want to make it my good striving and my effort and these good things I did and that donation I gave and those volunteer hours. We want to make it all these different things that earned us our spot. And what we see in the garden and what we see throughout all of Scripture is our role in salvation is sleep and watch God work. We sleep, he saves. And the beauty of this is then we get no credit for salvation because it all belongs to him. We have no role in earning our status. There's no salvation in our effort because there is no hope in even our best day because our best day is still marred by something less than perfection. So the symbolism we see here is that we are utterly reliant on Jesus, that he leads us into the garden and he suffers while we sleep. And as we will see in the weeks to come, he restores us in his resurrection. And the beauty of that is that we might rest in his provision. We might rest in all good things that he brings to the table because we bring ourselves poor and we say, please, Lord. I got a note this week from a friend. He's praying for me for something specific and it just was a Bible verse. Psalm 3, chapter 3, verse 5. The message just said, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I got this message because I have a friend who uh, is going through something at the moment. And I didn't even recognize this as being the prayer at first. I recognized this as David prayerfully telling us what we already know is that while we sleep, God works. That we're sustained by his power and his goodness and his great love for us. That, that while I lay down and sleep and then I wake again, God is still at work in every life. But he was sending it for my friend uh, Shane. It was his prayer for Shane. So we'll close with a story. A big part of the reason I'm here in Bowling Green is Shane. Worked with uh, my friend in uh, San Antonio. We were pastors on the same staff together. We both held the title of associate pastor, which just means in church speak, we do whatever the senior pastor tells us to do. And so we each held this title and did radically different things. And I taught mostly, and he was doing community groups, and it was a whole thing. But we kind of had this season where we, we were lockstep together. We got really close and became great friends. Kind of an older brother to me. And uh, fate, as it is, uh, God's hand moved him to Seattle. He was feeling a little bit restless, and 
uh, he greatly admired a couple churches in the country, and he had applied to be a theological editor at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which is where Mark Driscoll was pastor. So he got uh, accepted to do this job, so he, he flies to Seattle. He's going to be the uh, theological editor for one of the most, like, robust, healthy, strong, giant uh, publishing houses and churches in America. Six months after he got there, the whole thing was in shambles, and it imploded and folded on, in on itself. And so I was like, well, you win some, you lose some, right, Shane? And he goes, it's going to be all right. We're going to—we'll figure it out. Faithful as he goes, he gets another job. He's pastoring in Seattle, and, and my own season of restlessness comes up when I'm in San Antonio, and I say, you know what? I think it's time. And my wife says, yeah, I think it's time. And we start opening our eyes up to what else is out there. And you have to know I have a list. Uh, I'd lived in San Antonio and then Austin and Johannesburg, South Africa. And so that's cities of two million, one and a half million, and 10 million. And I said, I'll never live somewhere smaller than Austin, ever. We're recording this in the lovely city of Bowling Green, Ohio, where I'm a resident. I had a list going of where I wanted to be. I was looking in New York and Chicago and Seattle and maybe somewhere else. If you could really talk me into it, we'd go to one of these lesser places. So I had my list and I'd been uh, investigating some opportunities. My wife sends me a job listing for Covenant Church in Bowling Green, Ohio. And I said, what in the world is Covenant Church in Bowling Green, Ohio? I open the listing. I say, oh, wow. She goes, yeah. So that, that looks really like exactly what we're aiming for. She goes, yeah, it sure does. I said, well, let me not count on my own ability. Let me send it to Shane. Shane will know. Shane's been walking this journey with me for a long time. So I, I email it up to Seattle, and I give him no context. I just send him the, the, the posting for the job. And his reply is, it looks like you wrote it for yourself. You might want to send a resume. Okay. So I send one resume out in January of 2016. As the story goes, we live here now, so follow the, the trend there. In the middle of that, though, before we kind of landed here, we were, had to be interviewed. This is a new thing to me. I didn't know this. To get a job, you have to actually go through a series of interviews. And so I had never done that before for a ministry job. I just worked at the church I worked at because I knew people and we were in great relationship. And one day I just sort of showed up and they paid me. And so to, to get this job, there was like a phone interview coming up. And I said, well, what is that going to be? So I called Shane. I said, Shane, I've never interviewed for a church job before. And he goes, well, what are you expecting? And I said, I don't know, but what do I say? What do I say? What do I not say? What do I give them? What do I hold back? What opinions should I like lay out there for everybody? And what opinion should I kind of save for later? And Shane gave me the most counterintuitive, but simply the greatest advice I've ever gotten in my life. Shane said, get yourself fired. That's what you do. And I was like, that sounds like bad advice. <laughs> it's like, I, I kind of want the job, Shane. And he goes, yeah, you do, but you don't want to move 1,400 miles on a half-truth that 18 months later is going to be something you realize isn't a very good fit. So he said, why don't you go ahead and get yourself fired now and save yourself the moving expenses? And I went, that's, that's interesting. So as I did the first phone interview in April of 2016, my wife is just uh, down the way in the room. She can only hear my side of the conversation. And if you would have seen her face, you would have thought she'd seen a ghost because the things I was saying out of the pit of my soul that were absolutely honest trying to get myself fired, she went, oh, that couldn't have gone well. And I said, I don't know. And here we are. So a couple weeks ago, we were driving to Columbus to go visit some family, and, and I got a text from Shane's wife. I don't get texts from Shane's wife. And it said that while he was doing counseling, he was counseling a couple, he's still a pastor, he was doing some counseling, he had a massive heart attack. 46 years old, he has boys 16, 13, and 9. She said it was, uh, it was particularly bad, and, and the doctors were not really very hopeful, and he's on a ventilator. And he just shredded the whole thing. 
He just was, is not a good situation. They said there's some possibility that he could have an artificial heart for a short time, but, but most likely, and then it came down definitely, the doctor said his heart is so diseased and damaged that the only chance he has at survival is transplant. And if you know anything about transplant, it's not exactly easy to get on that list, much less get the exact right match and donor set up for a heart. She was honest and said it didn't look good at all. This Friday, two days ago, two weeks after that text came, word came that there was a heart available. So Shane, who's been in ICU for two weeks, who's been on a ventilator for two weeks, who's been struggling to survive on all of these machines, whose family has been wondering if they're saying goodbye, was given anesthesia. Shane was put into a deep sleep and they laid him on an operating table where a surgeon then took him, sliced him open, broke him open, and took his heart, diseased, broken, no longer functioning, the heart that was leading to death, he took the heart out. And in its place, he put in this brand new heart, this new hope, this new lifeline, this new sense of salvation that maybe if this works, then you have a life still. Shane lay down and slept. Friday night, he woke again. For the Lord sustained him. Shane's role in the surgery is what is particularly interesting to me. Shane's role in his surgery is what matters to us this morning. Put into a deep sleep. Wheeled into an operating theater. And fixed. Shane's role was that he slept. And this is the picture of our salvation. That while we sleep, whether we are in the garden or on the operating table or just coursing through life unaware of the consequence of sin on our eternity. Jesus lays his life down for us. He takes our hearts of stone. He replaces them with hearts that breathe life again. Jesus experiences complete separation from God that we might experience renewed wholeness with God. Jesus takes the cup of suffering for us so that we might rest. So we might rest in him. So that our striving might end. That our works might be shown to us to be filthy rags at the feet of our king. Jesus finds us in our lowest point, each and every one of us condemned because of our sin. And says, sleep And I will sustain you more than that. Jesus says, sleep and I will take on the punishment bound for you. And in return for that, I will be resurrected and you will have true life. That Jesus says, give me the heart that is leading to death and I will give you a new heart, a new life. You will be a new creation and it will lead to something so much greater. That it will lead to life and hope. That you'll be filled with grace and love. That eventually and eternally you will be with me. So we rest. And nothing less than Jesus' radical, unconditional, saving love. We lay down and sleep. We wake again because he sustains us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your ability to weave beauty into ashes is overwhelming. Your ability to thread the story of love into a place uh, that lacks it, overwhelms us, your ability, Father, to bring life in a place where only death exists. 
is everything to us. Lord, my prayer is that we would be a people who would learn to rest in you. And we learn to find our entire selves in you. Not take you for fire insurance and for some assurance of salvation, but then live out of our own abilities. Live out of the dying side of life. But Father, we might rest completely in you that our lives and our agendas, our priorities, our will would be yours. Lord, thank you. You have bought us with a price. And at the cost of your son, you call us you call us home to yourself. Lord, our prayer is that we would come to you like children to a father, that we would come and rest in your lap, be full of your goodness, and then scurry off to spread it everywhere we go without fear of death, without fear of what lies beyond us, but in total security of the life you've given us, in total security that our life is in you, that our hope is in you, and that through Jesus we are wholly restored. Father, I pray that you will find us a community that rests well so that we might attack the darkness with your beautiful light. Lord, thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for saving us. We pray in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. We continue.